Well, a very good day and welcome to all of you for this part two of going virtual. Uh, if you have not attended part one, we'd sure encourage you to uh, sign up and attend that session. And in the meantime, we're going to be talking about all sorts of additional considerations for virtual uh use today. So we will be looking at some more hardware and software related to uh, the virtual environment. I am Randy Johnston. I'm out of Hutchinson, Kansas, and uh, have been teaching virtual technologies for a long time. In fact, it, it dawned on me while prepping for today's session <clears throat> that I've been using uh, Citrix, which I hope to demonstrate to you for 35 years at this point. So been around the remote technology a while, but want you to to consider how to use remote technology best for you. So um, with that in mind, uh, today's session is supported by the DevMatics team. Uh, the DevMatics group um, builds all sorts of custom software, mobile apps and integration solutions and, and other pieces. And they have built the platform that we're running on uh, just as an example of some of their capability. Now, for today's podcast, you can listen for free. We are producing uh, podcasts twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays, and we're trying to expose you to all sorts of applications and products and so on in our sessions. We then push the podcasts out to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, and more. And we're glad that you're joining us uh, live today. So if you want to earn credits for today's webinar, it's simple. Uh, you just uh, can, can do this in a couple of minutes. You take a short five-question quiz, and we'll email your completion certificate through our uh, education partner, K2. And you're welcome to our materials Further, if you have questions, just uh, put those in either the chat box or the Q&A box today, and we'll do the best that we can to answer those. If you want more information on this course, you should be able to find it at cpe.cx gv2. So let's put up the first polling question. Just make sure that you're able to answer that polling question. And remember that during our time together, uh, it's required that you answer uh, three of the four questions that are posed during our time together. So if this is your first podcast, uh, use the coupon code one free podcast to earn your credit. Now, in the meantime, all of the product names, logos, brands are copyrighted their respective owners. This session is for educational use only. And all of the artwork and images are courtesy of Flat Icon. So these attendance prompts, of which you have your first one up now, will be approximately every 12 to 20 minutes, with four occurring over the hour or so. So make sure you select a response to confirm your attendance, and the system will track your responses, and uh, then we'll be able to confirm your attendance based on that. You must respond to 75% of the attendance prompts to receive full credit for the presentation, and your certificate will be delivered via email within two days of today's event. If you have any questions, visit CPE today, uh, or if you have any issues with your certificate, let us know that way. So you will also receive an evaluation form to uh, immediately after the podcast. It should pop up in a browser window. 
Evaluation only takes one to three minutes to complete. We ask you to fill it out for us because that feedback helps us determine uh, what types of things we can do to improve and things that may not have been quite as clear to you as well. So your feedback is very important to us. Just take a moment to complete the online evaluation. So if you have any questions, be ready to get those answered and let us know. And I'll try to handle those as we go today. I'm also happy to explain things in more detail or show other examples uh, along the way. So uh, in our last session, we uh, discussed two concepts that were associated with virtual desktops. You could either have it self-built, do it yourself, or it could be subscriber-based. And we're gonna revisit that here in just a little bit, but it was also true that we talked about things like uh, hardware needs, solid state drives and connectivity. We're gonna go directly into those topics here uh, that it really does take um, good quality support people driving your remote installation to resolve your issues. Most issues should be resolved within 72 hours. Also, we note that multi-factor authentication provides the best remote security. And if time allows today, I'm gonna to actually show you how MFA works for my own uh, installation. Now, as a reminder, we did see that there were roughly seven different styles in which you could have remote access. Now, I'm hopeful over time that the block in purple there, all SaaS in a browser with digital plumbing becomes the way of the future. I've wanted that to happen for some good time, uh, probably over 20 years at this point in time. But the vendors and, the, and lots of other things have caused this to move much slower than I'd like. So we discussed last time web-based relay, VPNs, having remote access to a desktop, how we might use public cloud uh, private cloud with Azure Amazon Web Services, as well as private cloud deployments and virtual desktop uh, infrastructure or VDI. Now we're gonna visit a little bit more about the configuration it takes to make all this work. But conceptually, I thought it would be helpful for you to understand that today we're running most of our applications in a single centralized desktop. This is often enabled by a tool like Citrix or RDS or Horizon View, and all of our apps wind up being there inside our one published desktop. Now, my thinking is that the future of remote access will be that we run in a browser most of the time, that Microsoft 365 or Zoho One or Google Workspace could be running in a browser instance. And if we had um, applications, for example, if you were in public practice, you could run your practice management or your tax or your audit in a separate browser. If you're in industry, you'd run your accounting software in a separate browser window. So in effect, our distributed desktops of the future will enable us to work from anywhere via a browser. Well, I think it's time for actually for our second question of the day, which of the following are remote hosting options, public cloud, private cloud, software as a service, or all of the above. So as you're thinking about the response on that, I think you will see a question popping. And uh, you know, in my mind, you've got all of these as an option. So all of the above seems to be, I think the most appropriate response. All right, well, now that said, what I'd like to do is uh, discuss uh, sorry about that. 
discuss just a bit of the strengths and weaknesses inside of these different approaches. And here today, I'd like to talk to you about the performance, the cost, the compatibility, and the usability of these various approaches. Now, um, this is almost debate style. We're going to talk about strengths and weaknesses along the ways of each of these different products or different approaches. Remember the seven approaches, the browser-based remote access, it's, it's generally going to be the least expensive option in almost all cases. Benefit and disadvantage is it gives direct access to the user's daily use computer. And that means that if you're working from home and you have a computer in the office and you get access to it, in effect, you're going right back to the office and working on the same computer. But that also means that a bad actor could get to that computer the same way. Now, with this approach, you can use this approach anywhere without installing a client application. Unfortunately, the performance tends to be slow. You usually get a jittery or a poor graphical experience for the user. Your keyboards and mouse clicks aren't always accurate. Sometimes they're laggy. Sometimes they don't seem to have the same precision. And since the access security isn't controlled by the firm or the company, there's a potential backdoor security risk here as well. So this can work in small businesses, but we are concerned that bad actors over time will figure out how to uh, compromise these type of approaches and that there is some risk uh, in addition to the lower quality experience. Now, I know many of you are new users, uh, so you may not remember some of these older products, but there, there was at a point in time, a remote uh, access product was very good called PC Anywhere. And that product has since been withdrawn because the bad actors figured out how to mime that and break in. So in effect, bad actors began to figure out if you're running PC Anywhere, they could get in pretty much like they were the real user. So that's the type of thing I'm worried about here over time. Right now, the vendors who supply product in this area are doing a pretty good job of keeping people out and making it a relayed path, but it's still one of the weakest security options. So next up, client-based VPNs. These tend to be very cost-effective. They uh, give direct access to resources from anywhere. They can be strong security encryption options, pretty easy to use and implement, but they're also the slowest of all the options available. So many of the applications that you want to run, frankly, just won't function over a VPN. If you're in public practice, for example, and you do tax, to do an individual tax return takes around 20,000 input-output operations per second. And that many operations over most communication lines is just way too slow to be effective. In effect, even if you're running the application locally, it's just too doggone sluggish. Now, these VPNs are frequently driven by firewalls, uh, the likes of Cisco and WatchGuard and, and SonicWall. And on that side, they are actually secure and that is effective. Some of the remote tools that we'll talk about, RDS, which is actually up next, in my mind, has to have a VPN for security purposes in front of it because 
like PC Anywhere, bad actors have figured out how easy it is to break into RDS. And many organizations are using RDS thinking that they're secure. And that just ain't necessarily so as the old song goes. But in any case, we don't believe that personal VPNs make sense either because they actually increase the security risk rather than decrease the security risk. So we like client-based VPNs from a security perspective. We don't like that they're slow uh, and we don't like that there's a lot of applications that run, but we also recommend them because for some applications like RDS, they're almost mandatory. Well, that brings us to the strengths and weaknesses in RDS. Now, RDS, by the way, at a point in time was known as terminal services. You may hear that name as well. Now, um, RDS doesn't take a lot more bandwidth than a VPN, but it does take much more than the next product we're going to talk about, Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktops. Now, RDS easy to install. In fact, there is a role that comes with all server installations. So Microsoft server installers don't have to think about this very much because the role is naturally there. Because of this ease of installation and from a user perspective, pretty good ease of use too. You just have to connect to the session and you've got a desktop. These become pretty easy to manage and they aren't a lot more expense, just a tiny bit of moderate expense compared to previously listed options. And that's mainly about licensing. Here there is a client access license or a CAL that is required. And it is a CAL that has to be renewed on a regular basis. The CAL is licensed separately, or it can be part of a Microsoft 365 licensing pack as well. It's fairly easy to scale in this environment. And in most RDS configurations, you can actually have 32 to 64 desktop sessions, in other words, users on a single server. So that's part of the reason this has been so attractive as well. Now, the next uh, application, Citrix Virtual Apps, and there's actually an extension of this in the VDI world called Virtual Apps and Desktop. But here we're talking just about virtual apps. Now, Virtual Apps is a licensed piece of software that uh, Citrix licenses to Microsoft. So Microsoft RDS is actually an older version of Citrix Virtual Apps. So the rule of thumb is Citrix will run their own product for two or three years before they license it to Microsoft. And uh, therefore, Microsoft lags Citrix capabilities by two, three, in fact, in some cases, I've seen it as much as five years. Now, Citrix Virtual Apps is the most robust of all the options that we'll talk about for uh, remote type of computing. It has the greatest compatibility with all types of devices. In other words, you can run Citrix Virtual Apps on an iPad or on an Android phone or an iPhone quite effectively or on a Mac. Beyond that, Citrix also has additional security options. And in this particular case, the security options are notable because um, to my knowledge, as of this broadcast today, Citrix's security has never been compromised as opposed to 
every other tool that we're talking about here has had a security compromise. RDS, VMware's Horizon View that we'll talk about in a minute, uh, the relays and so on. This one's never had that happen. Further, there is a uh, technology deployed in Citrix that requires minimal amounts of bandwidth per user. And what this does for us is it gives us the highest performance on the least uh, sized communication line available. It really made it possible to run over cellular and other approaches. Now, in Citrix, they have an approach to use both local resources and remote resources concurrently and seamlessly. So like you're used to thinking about your local file stores, you have local file stores, but you also have network file stores with Citrix, and you can use both of them at the same time, uh, copy from one to the other, and all that works very well. So in the public practice world, uh, Citrix is the most widely supported option with 12 of the 13 providers of hosting options to the profession using Citrix. But Citrix requires a specialized knowledge set to administer, maintain, and tune properly. And there are a number of IT people who speak against Citrix because they just don't know the product. They know RDS, which doesn't take them a lot of work, and it seems to be fine. Therefore, they promote that as an option. And uh, this does take specialized skill sets to really understand, configure properly, and deploy properly. In addition to the RDS Cal client access license that we spoke about a minute ago, uh, you have an additional license for Citrix. So pretty good rule of thumb in today's world is it's about $5 per user per month. Now, one thing that's a little hard to picture, but if you were here for part one, you might remember we talked about the virtual machines being either server-based or desktop-based. And Citrix Virtual Apps uses a server OS, in other words, Windows Server 2016 R2 or Windows Server 2019. So the applications have to be compatible with the server operating system. When we get to VDIs in just a moment, you'll recognize that the VDIs actually are desktop operating systems. So lots of strengths and weaknesses. You can see here that this one was maybe a little more complex than the first uh, three that we covered. Well, that brings us then to the VDI approach, the virtual desktop infrastructure. Now, you'll see uh, later in the materials, not only do I have Citrix virtual apps and desktops, the most popular or common of these, but also Horizon View. Now, we talked about both of those in part one, but I've uh, included the Amazon Workspaces and the Azure Virtual Desktop uh, as options as well. Now, with VDIs, what I like about these are that they use a desktop operating system. And today, you can still go back and support older operating systems, even though I didn't list it, you can still do DOS and you can still do Windows 3.1 and Windows 7 and 8 and 10 and 11 and so forth. So you can go back into the past supporting the legacy operating systems. Now, um, the VDI generally gives excellent software and printer support. And the reason for that is you're running a desktop operating system. So it's like running on a standalone desktop. 
This VDI approach is by far the most expensive of all the options. It takes a lot of resources. As I said in part one, it takes a boatload of resources to support a VDI properly. Now, this is just Randy talking for a minute with you, but I have hoped for VDI to be successful because of this desktop approach ever since it was obvious that some movement to the cloud was going to be done by big vendors. That was true with Amazon and Google and Azure. And I had suspected that the big vendors could scale enough to actually run desktops inside server data centers. I also valued the compatibility of software and printers when it was done this way. So, you know, uh, the progress is being made in this area. I had hoped it would be far further along than it is today, but it's pretty clear in the last four years in particular uh, that progress is getting made at a much higher rate than normal. Now, manufacturers usually recommend dedicated hosts and storage just for VDIs. In fact, uh, if I could split my hands with you, we'd actually have desktop VDIs and we would have all the application VDIs, completely separate servers to get all that work done. It is my opinion that you need a solid state drive to achieve optimal, or in some cases I would even say acceptable performance. But I can also tell you that VDIs are fairly memory hungry and require more memory than most installers are willing to give them to get optimal performance. Most of the time when a VDI isn't running properly, it's because the memory allocations are too small on the server side. Now, it does require an advanced level of hypervisor and storage management to properly implement and maintain and scale. So, you know, as you think about our various approaches here, we've got lots of strengths and weaknesses and, you know, I'm, I suspect most of you attending today are just wanting to understand what the best option is for being able to work virtually. And there is no single approach that I think works best, but there are several factors that determine which method, or in some cases, methods can work best for you. Now, in my mind, control is the determining factor. Uh, you can't fix outsource hosts. Your IT people cannot fix outsource hosts. That is thrown over the wall and given control to Microsoft or Amazon or Google or to a provider, and you just can't do anything about it. You know, I know we uh, broadcast part one a week ago, and, you know, obviously this is part two, but I would suggest that during the past week that I received no less than 10 emails from various uh, users around the country asking about issues with their hosting provider and is there something they could do to speed things up and you know my normal answer here is hey if you're hosted not much you can do about it you have to ask them to fix it now sometimes budget is a factor here certainly but realistically budgetary numbers for your purposes should be between uh, 75 at the low end, more commonly about $100, up to about $200 per user per month is what's going to, to make all this work. Clearly there's user requirements and performance needs and 
you know, application printer uh, uh, scanner compatibility that could drive some of this. And frankly, if you've got bandwidth option, uh, uh, bandwidth issues, I would tell you here in Kansas, I don't have a lot of options. So therefore I have to be very cautious about things that will work on what I have uh, available for internet usage and bandwidth is often a problem. Another thing that is clear is that the knowledge of uh, your current IT staff can be a factor. Now, uh, I'll call this a friendly bit of learning that took me a long time to get to. I bet you I had been doing this for 10, 15 years before I began to figure out why is, the, why is it that some people, when they go to hosting options, have a better experience and others have a worse experience. And I think it is related to your current IT provider, whether it's your own people or whether they're outsourced. If they're not very good, going to a hosting provider makes things great. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of stuff that didn't work works and life is beautiful. If you had a really good IT provider and you go to the same IT provider, you may have gnashing of teeth and complaints from your team members because things are worse, they're horrible, they're slower and so forth. And, and as I said, it was surprising to me because I knew that the same providers were praised and panned harshly. And I could not figure out a while, uh, for quite a while, but I eventually concluded it was the quality of the current IT staff. Well, what I've tried to do is summarize the various approaches that are out there in this grid. Now you'll notice I only picked five of the seven options. There's gonna be some overlap with the VDIs because a lot of the public private clouds are really VDIs. But uh, hopefully this grid is readable to you. You'll notice that the cost scales from very low to very high for VDI. And I think my scoring here is actually pretty accurate in terms of the feel. Performance will go from low to you know, high as well. But notice I reserved the word best to only be used once. And that was with Citrix in terms of the performance here. In terms of the application print compatibility, notice nowadays, most everybody has this worked out pretty well. I guess I did use best a second time because I wanted to drive the point that VDIs probably have the best application and print compatibility. Now here for bandwidth, uh, you know, we don't need a lot of bandwidth to really run uh, Citrix. So you'll notice both remote desktop services and Citrix report low, whereas I use the word moderate for BDIs and browser-based solutions. And then on the VPNs, they're very high. In fact, I, I would have put in something like super high, but I thought that might've been a little over the top. Now, in terms of the speed, notice if you're using browser-based or VPNs, you're gonna be disappointed perhaps with the speed at best, but most of the rest of the solutions today are relatively fast. Again, my intent is to show you how these look in demonstration in just a little bit. In terms of the security, you'll notice that I claim that the security in Citrix is high, but, and even though I said its security had never been compromised, you'll notice that I have the VDIs at very high 
And the reason for that is some of the maintenance tools that they have in place allows the securities to, to uh, be reset up every time you start a session. And when you get done, it wipes everything clean. So even if a bad actor gets in, they only have access for the session that you have and then their access rights go away. So there's some very advanced security features inside most VDIs. But to make the VDIs work properly, your IT knowledge has to be very high too. And you can get by with a little less on Citrix, but it's still going to be more than all the other approaches. So I've given you some examples of product names in the last column. But I hope what I have driven across in this section is that each option has its own distinct advantages and disadvantages. The browser-based options are less expensive and easiest to maintain, but they also yield the worst overall performance and user experience. Whereas VDIs have a very top-tier user experience and compatibility, and the VDI is also by far the most expensive and difficult to administer and maintain. Now, Citrix and RDS have the greatest overall balance, and I think Citrix has the edge overall because of its granular tuning capabilities. Well, I believe this is a good time to get an additional question in. So I'm just going to use which of the following as faults regarding client-based VPNs. They're very cost-effective. There's direct access to resources from anywhere. They're the fastest of all options, or they're uh, easiest to use and implement. So you should be seeing a session or question, but I would also just say that, uh, you know, <laughs> Client-based VPNs are certainly not the fastest of all options. All right. Now, uh, I know many of you are accounting attendees. A lot of times you attend these courses because you're interested in CPE and you're just really trying to solve a business problem. This is going to get a little technical sounding for just a little bit. But what I'm trying to do is arm you for questions to ask of your hosting provider or of your um, managed service provider, your IT team. And what I'm going to lay out here are my current recommendations for sizing these environments. Then as, as we get through this, I'll show you how all this works. Now, note that I'm very fussy about performance because I'm trying to trade hardware and software dollars for people's time. And because of that, you know, I want these darn things to run fast and, uh, I'll show you what I mean by faster in just a little bit. So let's start with a few technical considerations. In, there are three main technical aspects to consider when you're architecting your remote environment. Number one is the CPUs. Now, if you're doing outsourced to Amazon, Azure, and so forth, they allow you to specify the number of CPUs and processors and speeds, and you pay more for those as you get faster CPUs. If you're buying infrastructure, you basically can acquire a greater number of cores and processors. Uh, in the old days, I used to say, get the biggest doggone server that you could because you'll be able to take advantage of all those cores and processors. But about uh, six or seven years ago, I think in 2016, Microsoft decided to start charging by the core and the processor. So all of a sudden, 
the economics of what you purchased made a difference. Now, oddly enough, faster processors here don't make as much difference as you might think. It's really not the speed of the processor, but it's the number of cores and the type of processor that's available. But our rule of thumb is that you generally want to get computers, server computers, that have 48 to 64 cores today, and that they generally are in the top two tiers of the speeds. Now here, RAM is usually driven by the number of users, but I have a calculation that I use, and I'm happy to do the calculation with you in terms of the amount of RAM that's actually needed. But the rule of thumb today is that uh, we need more RAM per user than we used to because of browsers and Teams, Microsoft Teams. And uh, usually the number of users dedicates that metric. So in the old days with a VDI or a Citrix uh, desktop, we could get by in four gig of RAM, maybe six gig of RAM. And then it went up to eight. And nowadays I think you're a lot closer to 16. So notice that if you've got 16 users, 16 times 16 would be 256 mega RAM. If you're gonna have 32 users, 512 mega RAM would be minimum. So it is very normal today that we see 512 to 768 gig of RAM in most servers that are deployed or more. Now, that'll really help with your performance if you've got the right amount of RAM. And then, as I said at the beginning of this session and in part one, solid state drives and storage area networks that support solid state drives will absolutely get a benefit from this. So now in terms of storage, the speed of storage is by far the most overlooked aspect in almost every deployment. It doesn't matter whether we're doing hosting, whether we're doing um, Microsoft Azure, whatever, the speed of the storage is where it's at. Now I'll give you the numbers here on the next slide, but applications today are becoming or are already extraordinarily disk intensive. So most of the performance issues today occur because of the speed of the disks and the lack of input output uh, processing operations per second. Input output operations per second, IOPS is the key. Now, in the old days when we used spending drives, you were doing real well to get 180 IOPS off of a spinning drive. And if you put three or four in a server, which was the old RAID methodology, you actually could add those up. So if you had five drives at 180, you might have uh, 900 IOPS. Well, today, most of the solid state spindles, solid state drives will do 20,000. IOPS. It's a big deal. So when we start thinking about input output operations per second, it really defines how quickly the storage can process the data. Uh, again, a SAS spindle, 180, you're doing real well. And uh, you may not get five times 180 to get the 900 that I just illustrated, because there's actually penalties for different types of rates. But a solid state drive is generally going to give us about 20,000 IOPS. And if we put three or four solid states down into place, we get a multiplier. 
even the fastest Amazon service available today only yields about 16,000 IOPS. Azure is below that. So the fact of the matter is that if we have a heavily input-output intensive need, using the public hosting facilities from Amazon, Azure, or Google actually won't perform very well. But a lot of organizations are choosing to do that because they can outsource all of those resources and not have to really worry about the capital costs or uh, upgrading them. But the fact of the matter is, you're going to have a limit and you just can't fix that limit. IOPS is the most critical component of VDI component uh, performance. So as it turns out then, I have a, a variety of uh, concerns that I have on getting remote access right, lack of expertise of the installers, whether they're internal or external, cutting corner on critical hardware like storage area networks, firewalls, switches, and frankly, just the knowledge to make all this stuff work. So in subsequent materials, I've actually laid out my good, better, and best recommendations for different types of components that are needed in your networks. Even if you're all in the cloud, you still need firewall and switch and cable. You just don't happen to have the server SAN and storage in-house because that's in the cloud, but you'll still need workstation and monitor and, and so forth. So you can see here that I've said, look, for a firewall, uh, two firewalls good, but one that has security services on it is better. One that is managed is better than that. For a, a gigabit switch, a layer two trunking switch is good, but a stacked backplane is better and a layer three chassis is better than that. For cabling, 6A is sufficient. Anything below that is not, and many of you have 5E cable that's been installed in your offices or homes for a long time. 6AF is better, F is foil, that means it's shielded, and CAT8 is better than that. And you can see in each of these categories, I've actually tried to illustrate what I think is the good, better, and best approach. Now, beyond that, it is also true that we can do the same thing even if we're looking at firewalls. We can have different levels of firewalls based on our users or different levels of switches or different levels of cabling. Beyond that, I'm going to ask you to consider having redundant communication lines no matter what, because if you're running in the cloud and you lose your communication line, that means everybody in your office can't work. And, you know, perhaps your primary line is cable and your backup is satellite or your primary is wireless and your, you know, uh, backup is cable and so forth. I'm not sure what it'll be for you, but I can tell you that redundant lines are really critical. Beyond that, we believe that having good grade, good grade firewalls is important. I've named the key firewall preventers vendors here for you, Sonic Wall and WatchGuard, Cisco, Fortinet, and Checkpoint, I think, represent those best. And so, you know, when you start thinking about what's required for remote access, notice a good question is firewall, good connectivity, computers, all of the above. And as you're thinking about your response there, notice that I think all of the above is almost mandatory. Well, 
moving ahead here then, uh, you will discover that there are a number of communication lines that can be purchased. If you can get fiber optic Metro Ethernet, that's actually the best. If you can get MPLS, that's the second best. If you can get Verizon Fios or AT&T U-verse Gigapower, which is a fiber offering, that's probably your third best. Then your cable modems come into play. And uh, in the last week, uh, while I was at the AICPA Engage Conference, uh, I had attendees come up and complain to me about their performance on Charter and on Comcast and on Cox and on Time Warner. None of the cable providers are doing a great job. And then older technologies of DSL and POTS uh, round out the communication line lineup. Now, when it comes to licensing, recognize that you're going to have to have uh, public cloud licensing or private cloud licensing. If you go to a hosted vendor, they can provide the licensing to you from most of the major providers, including Intuit for QuickBooks and Microsoft for Office and Adobe for Acrobat and so forth. And in some cases, they're actually going to try to sell you Microsoft 365 licenses. On the other hand, if you're doing a private cloud or a personally hosted network, you're going to have to get your Microsoft licensing again, most likely through Microsoft or Office 365, or you can do an open license approach. The hosting providers do have a special type of licensing known as SPLA, Service Provider License Agreements. Now, with Microsoft alone, and I'm not trying to teach you licensing in today's session, there's roughly 80, that's eight zero different types of licenses available. It's gotten a little simpler with Microsoft 365, but there's still dozens of licenses available there. So hopefully the next question won't catch you off guard. I think it, I've given you enough that you're, you should be able to answer that. Which of the following licenses are options for remote access? Open licensing, SPLA, Office 365, or all of the above. So uh, as you think about that, which of the following options for remote access? And uh, I will just note that it turns out that all of them are the option. So it looks like I might have gone a little sleep there, but uh, all of the above is actually the best answer. All right. Now, uh, I do want to demonstrate to you, and, and uh, our timing is going to work out that I can do that uh, well, I believe. So... There's some big choices we've been talking about in part one and part two of this presentation. First off, the big choices are, do you do it yourself or you do some sort of subscription base? Now, do it yourself may mean that you have internal IT teams, IT contractors, managed service providers. And it's clear that you could use relay services or RDS or Citrix or Horizon View. All of those are options. And by the way, all of those are options for subscription too. But in subscription, you also add the hosting options. And then I'd also like to just mention a couple of other ones. And the first one of those is the Azure Virtual Desktop. So this is Microsoft's approach to desktop. 
you know, they show that you can try Azure Virtual Desktop for free. But the fact of the matter is that this takes a fairly extensive setup. They haven't really got this where I would consider it subscription pricing. But what happens is they do have a pricing calculator. But if you start doing this, you realize it turns into kind of a, a well, an endless process for a while to get the estimate rights because you've got all sorts of calculations that have to happen. When you try to have a vendor help you do that, they'll make some estimates, but I have yet to see an Azure virtual desktop quote that I consider accurate. Now, on the other hand, you have Amazon workspaces. Now here workspaces is again, a complete uh, desktop environment. Um, and I've got, clients that have these deployed as well. It's somewhat the same thing here uh, when you're trying to figure out how much does it really cost to do all this, because you'll notice it'll ask for the number of workspaces and the operating system and what type of bundle type. And part of the issue for you is as a non-technical user, how big of a, a environment do you need? Do you need one that can do standard business or do you need one that can do graphics and performance? And the pricing on these is radically different. Uh, interestingly enough to me too is for graphics, you'll notice how they uh, start adding additional CPUs in addition to the GPUs that are in here. So this gets kind of technical in a hurry but a typical you know, graphics setup, I might pick a 16 VPU, uh, eight gig of memory, and I'll probably have more storage and so forth. But then the calculations again, get way out of hand. I show you that simply to let you know that there are indeed two common VDI approaches from Amazon and Azure. And in my world, if they did that job beautifully and easily, It'd be a real deal to use it. But today, most Azure virtual desktops and Amazon workspace environments are $125 to $250 a month, depending on the amount of CPU required. And that makes me stop again, because if I'm running a desktop that is synchronizing to the cloud pretty seamlessly, um, and I'm buying that machine for $1,500, which would be pretty normal, spread over a five-year life, that's only $300 a year. I'm talking almost that much in two months when I'm doing a, a hosted desktop. So unless you have the direct need for a hosted desktop VDI, that makes less sense. Now, I suspect a few of you attending are CPAs in public practice. And you'll notice that I've named the two hosting methods that CCH Walters Kluwer and Thompson used. The first one of those is CCH Access, which basically is CCH's platform all running on Azure. That's the methodology that they use and do. And um, they run out of three data centers on the East Coast and the central part of the US and the West Coast. And their competitor, Thompson Virtual Office, runs out of one Citrix-based data center in Eden, Minnesota, Edenton, Minnesota, which is the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. So you can get your applications hosted by your vendors. Now, if you're an industry attendee, 
I just mentioned to you that most of the vertical applications that are available can also be run by the vendor on their infrastructures. So if I have you picture this for a minute, today we're running with these individual applications if you're a CPA firm from Intuit or Thompson or CCH and Iris, and we're beginning to run more in our silos, Microsoft 365, which we have other CPD Today courses to teach you about that, on Access or on uh, Thompson's virtual office or on Beyond Today. And in the future with Intuit, it'll be ProConnect. And then you probably have something else. Maybe it's Azure for all the rest of your applications. And as I started today's session with this concept that we're going to go from a centralized desktop to a browser is kind of top of mindset for me. Well, I have just a couple more slides that I want to cover, but I think this is a good time for us to run uh, a remote access piece. So I'm simply going to use my NMGI Citrix here to get this done. And uh, what I'd like for you to do is observe the speed, and I hope it comes through in demonstrations so you can see how this works. But I am going to log into Citrix in my NMGI environment, and I'm going to do a multi-factor authentication, which you'll see here is a push notification, I believe, in a minute. So I'm going to log on here, and it just says, hey, you know, I want to do an MFA on you, can you? So what's going to happen is on my phone, I'm going to get a notification, and it just says, hey, are you going to approve this? And I'm going to click the big approve button, and you can see on your screen then that it logs me in. Now, the login itself is actually fairly straightforward. Uh, I'm going to launch my Citrix desktop here, and I am using virtual apps, not a virtual apps and desktop. So this is an RDS style deployment of Citrix here. You can see the login process here end to end, so you get a sense of the amount of time that it takes. Generally, the login should be completed in less than 15 seconds. So at the risk of setting your expectation incorrectly with your existing vendor, 15 second maximum login is about where I go. So now to also give you a flavor of performance, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to run Microsoft Excel. Now I am running this off of my servers in Hutchinson, Kansas. We maintain our own servers in our own private cloud. And I want to give you a flavor of the performance. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to click on Excel, click, and it's loaded. Now I don't, I didn't time that. That was about a second, I figure. If you missed that, let's just do it again because I do want you to get the flavor. This is Excel running remotely. So here we go, click. Okay, so that was clearly less than a second. And what happens is in these remote environments, when you have them configured properly, uh, clearly I could run the whole screen so it would look like I'm taking over the entire environment. And I certainly can do that. But in this particular case, if I load a sample file, like these process maps, I can do that. And you basically see this ability here to run the entire application, either in a window or taking over the entire environment. Now, 
I'm going to exit this for just a minute because I think it doesn't hurt you to say, well, is that because Randy's machine's fast? Well, it might be. What I'm going to do is I'm going to launch Excel here locally. Now, let me do that again because I didn't give you a warning. So here I'm going to launch Excel locally, and I should tell you I'm on the fastest computer available today, um, bar none. And so notice this is absolutely the fastest local CPU. So here we go. Click. And I am into the blank workbook, if you will. And now let me open that same file from a local install. Okay, so notice the file load is about the same time, but the whole process in the end here is far longer in my local desktop than it would be in my Citrix environment. So here we go one more time. I'm going to click on Excel 1001, 1002, and let's open this. So it's probably two, two and a half seconds. Still quite good, but it isn't what we're going to see over here. Come over here click, poof, it's up and running. And that's what it takes to run remote desktops accurately. Now, to give you a flavor on this, friends, it's pretty straightforward. Um, the load time of applications like Excel are just demonstrative of the speeds. But the fact of the matter is things like QuickBooks, which commonly would run uh, anywhere from 20 to 30 seconds to load in the current versions of QuickBooks. On the infrastructure at MGI, I routinely load it up in about a second and a half or two seconds. It's radically quicker. And it's because of all these things we've been talking about in both part one and part two of our time together. Now, you know, again, I'm a fan of this approach. I just believe that the um, remote workstations, remote access has such benefit, but I've included technical guidance throughout as well as, uh, you know, very specific ways to get this done. And so, you know, the last slide, and I do want to jump back for just a, a couple of summary reminders as well. Um, but you've got to have the right workstations you got to have the right servers to make this all work right. If you're running a private cloud, you've got to have virtualization. Today, most of the time that's done with VMware using high availability failover and a high performance storage area network. You can use Citrix virtual apps or virtual apps and desktops or Horizon VDI to really get the performance that I just illustrated. We have another session at CPE today on backup, and we talk a lot about backup appliances, but you'll need those as well. Notice I want the right firewalls, I want the right cabling, I want the right phone system, and I want the right UPSs. At the firewall level, I want gateway protection and I want antivirus working properly. We want to run disk encryption everywhere. We want dual factor authentication, which you saw me illustrate with the Cisco Duo here. You want email reflection, uh, you want you know, Adobe running, you want your retention policies in place, and you want all your security apps and, and other items. And so when I think about the, the items that we've talked about in both part one and part two here, if I simply remind you, and hopefully I'll jump to the right place, we talked in part one about 
remote apps and remote desktops being kind of like a bus. And, you know, the good or bad news is, is everybody's in the bus together. And so you can get a nice experience, but when things don't work right, it really becomes much more of a problem. And in general, if you've got performance restrictions, I want you in, you know, Citrix virtual apps or the VDIs to get the better performance. As opposed to a VDI, you might recall we talked about that being kind of like a taxi. And in effect, whether you're doing virtual apps and desktops or Horizon View, you get the desktop experience when you do that approach. Now, on the other hand, a number of you are not in a position to do your do it yourself. You're probably going to have to pay for somebody else to do it. And at that point, if you're a CPA firm, you're almost certainly going to go to one of the 13 or so hosting companies out there, the likes of CTROM or Right Networks or Ace Cloud probably fall in those uh, categories. So I think with that said, hopefully I've got this uh, correct here. Sorry about that. I jumped into a little bit in the wrong spot, but I am there now. So in both part one and part two, we talked about the seven different remote access approaches. You can hear again, solid state drives are the main determining factor for speed. I'm just going to flip over one more time. You know, to me, it's a heck of a lot different watching Excel pop like this than it is watching Excel pop like this on this solid state drive on the fastest processor available. Uh, notice that really gets me thinking more. Wow, I, I think I want more of this type of speed than I do my desktop speed. You should be able to work remotely pretty much like you work in the office. If your speeds on your current providers are slower than what I just demonstrated to you, that's actually a provider problem. It's not really a technology problem. The technologies can do a pretty good job on up to about 200 users. Now, if you're bigger than 200 users, we need to have a little bit slightly, a slightly different conversation because we can build these darn things to run well at scale. But if you're 200 users or less, my expectation is you should run like I demonstrated. All right. Well, that gets us to uh, the close of today's session. Just want to remind you that you can earn credits in as little as two minutes by taking a five-question quiz. We'll send you the certificate. You're welcome to my materials, which, uh, you know, again, you're, you, you can review. If you have questions, you can reach out to me directly. And if you have not taken a podcast from us before, use the one free podcast code and, uh, uh, earn a credit that way. But regardless, even if you don't do that, I'm pleased that you've been along to learn about virtual office and remote access. Uh, connect with us on social media. We'd love to hear from you either on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And look for our podcast today in a few hours on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google's podcast, or on SoundCloud. We appreciate all of you who are attending today. And I look forward to seeing you either around the country or on another podcast with CPE Today in the very near future. Thanks for your time, and you have a fine day.